going to continue in our worship through the preaching of God's Word, and we're going to continue in our series covering the life of Abraham. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to get them out and turn to Genesis chapter 18, and I'll read our passage for us. It starts in chapter 18, verse 16, and it'll also be on the screen, so I encourage you to follow along as well. Starting in verse 16, it says this, When the men got up to leave, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way, then the Lord said, said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, come out, the the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Skipping down to verse 32, it says, then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. If you will bow to me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus. Lord, that while we were far off, while we were your enemies, you came and you died for us, that your blood was shed for us and that you resurrected from the grave so that through Jesus, we can be reconciled to you that through Jesus, we can have relationship once again with you. And so Lord, we thank you for that sacrifice. We thank you for your love. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and that in it, we find the words to life. Lord, please be with Pastor Kevin this morning as he faithfully preaches and proclaims your word. And Lord, be with us, that we would be active listeners. Lord, that that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are willing to be shaped and molded through the power of your Holy Spirit to conform us into the image of your son, Jesus. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Ryan. And thank you for being here in worship today, uh, especially uh, on Time Change Sunday and when it's pouring outside. You guys absolutely get bonus points for being here today. Uh, Those of you watching online in bed in your pajamas, no bonus points for you. Um, Just FYI. More than 20 years ago, when I was uh, serving as a student pastor at a church in another city, 
I had gone out one Monday afternoon after work to go run. Uh, I ran, came back to the church office. I gathered my clothes together. I was going to my car to go home and get a shower. And as I was walking to my car, my cell phone rang. Now, just to give you a picture of what it was like then, this was an analog phone, and it was the size of a brick. If you had a phone back then, you looked like Zach Morris walking around talking on that phone. So that phone rang, and I answered it, and it was the pastor of the church. He said, what are you doing? So I just finished Ron's, getting ready to go home. He said, I need you to come to the hospital. And then he called the name of a college student in our church, and he said, he's been in an accident. He's at the hospital. I'm not sure what the situation is, but they're telling me it's not good. So I went back inside, I changed my clothes, I raced to the hospital. By the time I got there, the ER waiting room was full of college students, of family members, other members of the church. Everybody was there trying to find out the news about exactly what had happened. There was a lot of emotion in the room, as you can imagine. And as hours went by, we would get various reports and they would say, well, it doesn't look good and we're still trying and we're, we're still you know, hoping that everything will come out, but it doesn't look good. And so groups began to gather and pray. And some college students over here would pray and some other people would pray on the side and some people would get on their phone and they would call friends and they'd say, hey, you need to pray. So this is really serious. We're not sure what will happen. About 11 o'clock that night, I looked down the hallway and I saw a doctor coming through these double doors. And I could tell by the look on his face that it wasn't good. And he found the parents of this young college student and I could tell by the words that he was saying that it was bad. And they began to weep and quickly word spread that this college student didn't make it, that he had died. And even telling the story now, there was so much emotion in all of that. It was such a gut-wrenching experience. But looking back, what bothers me as well is the fact that so many people prayed and they begged and they pleaded with the Lord to save this young man's life. God did not answer that prayer in the way that everyone wanted. All of us in this room have had that experience. You have prayed for something and God has not answered that prayer with a yes. You prayed for a family member to be healed and the family member wasn't healed. You prayed for the wayward child to come home and the wayward child did not come home. You prayed for that job and you didn't get the job. You prayed for the marriage to be healed and the marriage wasn't healed. We pray and pray and sometimes God does not answer our prayers in the way that we expect, which begs the question, why do we pray? What is the point of prayer when at times God will not answer the prayer the way we want him to answer our prayers? That was what we heard in the passage earlier that Ryan read. Abraham has this conversation with God and he begs and he pleads with God, do not destroy Sodom. Please do not destroy the city. Yet at the end, the city is destroyed. However, in that conversation, in that back and forth between Abraham and God, we see some things in that conversation that give us insight into what does happen when we pray. 
If you've got your Bible still open, go to Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis 18, we are introduced to the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were close to each other in physical proximity. More importantly, they were close to one another morally. Earlier in Genesis 13, we are introduced to Sodom. And here's what the Bible said about Sodom then. Now, the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Sodom and Gomorrah were these wicked cities where there was all kinds of evil in these cities. In chapter 18, we read at the beginning where God comes and appears to Abraham and Sarah along with three visitors. Most scholars uh, believe those three visitors were angels in human form. They have this conversation about the promise of a son, this theme in their lives, this promise that had not become reality yet. And then in the second half of chapter 18, the story shifts. And so chapter 18, verse 16, here's what we read. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So here in this very first paragraph, the story opens with God asking these men, these angels, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? A better translation would be not a question, but a statement. Surely I will not hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, right? Now, why does he do this? Why does God say, I'm going to peel back the curtain, the divide between heaven and earth, and give Abraham a glimpse into my divine plan. Why does he agree to include Abraham in that? A couple of reasons. Verse 18 gives us one, because Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. God here says, look, here is Abraham, who through, through his line, all the nations on earth will be blessed. If you've been here with us, you know that promise goes back to Genesis chapter 12 and it's set in light of the brokenness that was created when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And the world became broken and humanity became broken and there was this big question mark, how would God fix this broken relationship between man and himself? And in Genesis 12, we get a clue. God says, through Abraham, I will bless all the nations of the earth. Rather than nations there, think peoples. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And this 4,000-year-old promise was seen 2,000 years later in a descendant of Abraham when Jesus Christ went to the cross and died on the cross to bridge the gap between us and God to fix the brokenness that we see in Genesis chapter 3. So that today... All the peoples of the earth have been blessed through this descendant of Abraham. Listen to me. 
Even the most hardened atheist will acknowledge that Christianity is the only world religion that has crossed all cultures and all races and in all these different people groups so that today in a thousand different tongues, people claim to be followers of Christ. The entire world has been blessed through this descendant of Abraham, through this promise that God made to Abraham. So it makes sense, God says, I'm going to peel back the divide and reveal to Abraham what I'm about to do. Secondly, he says, I'm going to reveal it to Abraham because I have chosen him. In verse 19, he says, I have chosen him to keep uh, my laws, to do what is just and right. So God here is saying, I am pulling Abraham in close as a confidant, as a friend, to reveal to him what I'm about to do. Now, we've talked about this. If you are in the line, if you are a follower of Christ, you are in the line of Abraham, which means when you go before God in prayer, God does not treat you as an enemy. He is not angry with you. He is not upset with you. Rather, he treats you as a friend, as a close confidant, someone that he pulls in close to him. Jesus said it this way in John 15. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. When you talk to God, if you are a follower of Christ, it is as a friend of God. That is the picture in this passage. God says to Abraham, I'm bringing you in close to reveal to you what is about to happen. In verse 20, God tells him that plan. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, if you are paying attention as I read those verses, you ought to have a big question mark over your head right now. These verses seem a little strange to us. In fact, these verses seem to violate two traditional beliefs about the character of God. Uh, it says here that God has heard a report about the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, you and I hearing a report about an apartment building collapsing in Miami and not knowing about it until we hear the report. And then God says, I'm going to go down and investigate to see if the report is actually true. Like you and I hearing about the apartment building collapsing and saying, let's get in our car, let's drive down 75 to Miami to see if that apartment building has actually collapsed. And we read this and it violates these two traditionally accepted beliefs about God. One, that God is omniscient, meaning God is all-knowing. God knows everything that happens, past, present, and future. That God knows everything. And secondly, that God is omnipresent, that he is, there, is everywhere at once. But then we read this passage and it's like God's caught off guard. It's like, oh, surprise, there's a report about the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, I've got to get in my car and drive down there to see if in fact this is actually true. How do we understand this passage knowing that God is omniscient and omnipresent? 
I'm gonna teach you two other terms to make sure that you feel like you're getting your money's worth at church this morning. All right, here's one, anthropomorphism. This is assigning human characteristics to God to help us better understand the character of God. And theodicy, which is a defense of God's actions, or here we would say an explanation of God's actions. The author here is using both of these to help us understand the character of God. That God is a just God, and he will not arbitrarily judge. That nothing happens by accident, but that he will make sure that this sin is just as wicked and grievous as the report has stated before there is ever a judgment. And so using these two ways, God is able to be seen as a just God. Verse 22, the men turned away and went towards Sodom. For Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So these three men depart, these three angels leave them, and Abraham and God are standing there. And then it says, Abraham approaches God. This is the first time in the Bible that the human comes and initiates a conversation with God. And Abraham does this to ask the Lord for something specifically, to pray for the city of Sodom. And he says, will you destroy Sodom if there are righteous individuals in the city? Will you sweep away the righteous even though, uh, just because there are wicked there? And then he gives a little bit more uh, specificity to it. Verse 24, what if, Abraham asked, there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do Right. So Abraham comes before God here and he pleads and he begs with God, but he does so based on the character of God. And keep in mind, at this point, Abraham did not have the 66 books of the Bible. At this point, he did not have scrolls with the Old Testament laws. At this point, he did not even have the two tablets containing the Ten Commandments. But Abraham had his own experience with God and the stories of his ancestors and how they had interacted with God. And based on his own experience and the stories that he had been told, he knew two things about God. That God is both just and merciful. And so his prayer here appeals to both of those character traits of God. So he says, God, if you are just, and if there are 50 people in the city who are righteous, I know because of your justice, you will not destroy the city. And God, I know that you are merciful. And if there are 50 righteous people in the city, you will spare the wicked because of your mercy and not destroy the city of Sodom. So here's how God responds to this prayer. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So here the prayer works. 
Abraham intercedes and God agrees. I will spare the city on the basis of my justice and mercy. I will spare Sodom. Now the next section is a little long. It's a back and forth between Abraham and God. Abraham says, well, if you'll spare it for 50, what about 45? Well, if you'll spare it for 45, what about 40? And what about 30? And what about 20? And there's this back and forth between Abraham and God. And it almost seems like, based on that passage, that bargaining with God is okay. That it's okay to go to God and say, God, if you will just... You'll do this thing for me. God, I promise you that I will. God, if you'll just do this thing, I promise you I will be in church the next three, three months of Sundays, even time change Sunday. God, I will go every single Sunday. If you'll just do this thing for me. However, it's, it's not the bargaining here that we need to pay attention to. What this passage is doing is highlighting God's mercy. That God says, I'll spare it for 50 I'll spare it for the sake of 40. I'll spare it for 20. God is a God of justice, but he is also a God of mercy and extreme patience. And he's saying to Abraham, yes, yes, I will display my mercy here if you can find 40, 20, 10. And then finally in verse 32, here's what we read. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just one more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Now, why Abraham stopped at 10, we don't know. Any, any guess is just that. It's just a guess at why he stopped at 10. But he stops at 10. The conversation is over. Abraham and the Lord part ways. Abraham goes to bed that night. He gets up early the next morning to go and to see if Sodom has been destroyed. And when he looks out over the plain, he just sees this dense, black, thick smoke rising to the sky. Sadly, there were not 10 righteous people in Sodom. And so God was forced to destroy this evil, awful city. Okay, so again, this brings us back to our early, earlier question. Abraham prayed for Sodom to be destroyed, and then at the end of all of that, Sodom was still destroyed. So the question is, what practical effect does prayer have? If sometimes when we pray, God does not answer our prayers the way that we want him to answer our prayers, then why do we pray? I mean, this is where the rubber meets the road for us uh, in here. Why do we pray if God sometimes does not answer our prayers in the way that we think he should answer our prayers? There are a number of answers to that question, but there is one that is seen in this passage. And that is this. For Abraham, that experience was a faith builder. Having that conversation with God did not change the outcome of what happened to Sodom, but it changed Abraham. And the same is true with us. When we pray, it may not change the outcome of what will happen, but prayer changes us. It changes us when we meet with God. In fact, there are three things that it does in us. If you've got your message map, this is on there. Prayer does this specifically. It gives us, number one, the right view of ourselves. So when we pray, it shows us who we are. Abraham experienced this. Verse 27, 
says to the Lord, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, in the presence of God, Abraham recognized his own fragile, frail state. Abraham understood in the presence of God that as they spoke with one another, that Abraham was not the most important person in that conversation. And before the Lord, he realized his humble state. When he came before God, he saw himself with great humility. When Katie and I lived in Italy, uh, one of the Italian words that we learned while we lived there is the word prego just like the sauce that you buy in the store. It has a number of translations, which can be very confusing to someone trying to learn the language. Uh, one of the ways it was used was to say, you're welcome. So if you said, thank you, someone could respond with prego. Uh, another way, the most common way it was used was to say, please. So if you really wanted something, you would say, prego, would you do this for me? The literal English translation of the word is, I pray, I pray. And so someone would ask for something and they would say, pray go, I pray that you would do this for me. Now I can remember one evening, Katie and I were walking down this small little street and there was a grocery store uh, on the right hand side as we were walking down this street and it was right at eight o'clock at night. And the reason I remember that is there was a an older lady standing on the sidewalk in front of the store and a young man standing on the step above her going into the store and the young man was wearing some kind of apron. He obviously worked at the store. This, this lady, I could tell by the body language, even though I could not understand all of their words, this older lady, I'm sure, had started to prepare dinner that night and realized she was missing one ingredient. Just one critical ingredient. And so she raced down to the grocery store to buy that ingredient only to realize that it closed at eight o'clock and she's there at 8.01. And she's standing in front of the store asking this young man, let her go in and get this one ingredient that she needs. And I can still picture her standing there with her hands clasped together saying, prego, prego, prego. And I did not know many Italian words, but I knew the one for I'm sorry. And he responded, mi dispiace, I'm sorry. But he wasn't, I could tell <laughs> that he wasn't really sorry. I don't know what the Italian translation would have been, but it was sorry, not sorry. And I so badly wanted to go to the guy and say, just let her go and get the one ingredient that she needs. My Italian wasn't that good, and I thought at the end of the day, he might call the polizia on me, and that would not have been a good scene. I can picture her there with her hands together. I pray, I pray, please give this to me. There was a piazza located very close to our apartment, and in the piazza, there was a playground, and families would come, and their children would play on the playground. And one afternoon, we were walking through, and I can picture this little five-year-old, six-year-old boy. He was playing on the playground, and his mom said, okay, come on, it's time to go. We've got to leave now. And I can see this little boy in front of his mama. Prego, prego, prego. Five more minutes of playing, please. No, it's time to go. Please, please, please. When we come before God and pray, it is hands clasped together, recognizing that we are not in control. 
that we need something. And that is a humbling experience for us to be before God, recognizing that it is not a transactional relationship between us and God. It is not us going to God and saying, okay, just like in the story of Aladdin, you're the genie in the lamp. I'm telling you to do this. You've got to do this for me. It is coming before God. I pray, I pray, pray, go, pray, go. Please do this for me. And it, and prayer through that helps us see reality of who we are. Secondly, prayer gives us the right view of others. Now, I want you to notice in this passage, Adam, uh, Abraham, Adam, he's, he's way before him. Abraham comes before God and he is pleading on behalf of Sodom. He hated Sodom. We saw that story earlier where Sodom was attacked by this kingdom and uh, Abraham's nephew Lot was taken captive and a lot of the goods and treasures of Sodom were taken away and Abraham gets together an army and he goes and he rescues Lot and in the process brings back these goods and the king of Sodom comes out to meet Abraham and says, hey, thank you so much for bringing all of our stuff back. Here is payment, a rightly deserved payment for what you did for us. And Abraham says, no, I want zero association with Sodom. It is a wicked city. I do not want to be connected with you in any way. And yet Abraham comes before God and pleads on behalf of this incredibly wicked city. One commentary that I read put it this way. It says, it is impossible to miss the persistence of Abraham in intercession. Abraham did not stop asking at 40 or 50 and simply say, now it's in the Lord's hands or the Lord will do what the Lord will do. Abraham shows us <clears throat> that there are times when an intercessor must feel the eternal destiny of men and women depends on the intercessor's prayer. This is a kind of heart God wanted to draw out of Abraham, a heart that cared so much for people made in the image of God that he worked hard to intercede on behalf of a city that deserved judgment. <clears throat> this was the heart of a great leader of a large and mighty nation needed to have. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus commanded us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Why did he say pray for those who persecute you? Because Jesus recognized that you cannot pray for someone for long and keep a heart of hatred toward that person. That as you pray, it changes how you view others and gives you the right perspective of even your enemies. Men and women who are made in the image of God. Individuals that Jesus died for on the cross. That as we pray for them, it gives us that perspective of them. And then finally, here's the last thing. When we pray, pray it gives us the right perspective on God. One of the things this passage does is to give us insight into why sometimes God does not answer our prayers the way that we expect. And here we see that. There's this, there's this back and forth. God, would you spare the city for 50, for 30, for 20, for 10? And at the end of the day, not even 10 righteous people could be found in the entire city of Sodom. Only four righteous people were found, and that was it. And those four were rescued and God destroyed this wicked city. 
And what we see here is that God knew far more than Abraham. And God knows far more than us. And when we pray, we pray as Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, which is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we remind ourselves what God said through the prophet Isaiah. My ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so we come before God and we say, we recognize that you know everything and we do not. That you know the future, you know every detail of the present, you know everything that has happened in the past and I don't know that. And God, I'm begging you and I'm pleading you for this, but also I submit to you, God, because I recognize that you are God and I am not. And even in the midst of unanswered prayers, God, I still trust you. Even when I can't understand, I still trust you. Even when it's not the answer that I want, God, I still trust you. Trust you.